This is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome back to the Rebel Author Podcast, episode 42. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Alex Bryant all about psychology and character psychology. It is a deeply fascinating conversation, even if I do say so myself, I definitely geeked out whilst we were talking, because we delve into the topics of madness and sanity and where that line is really drawn, and I hope will be useful for you for your character creation. But first to last week's question. And I am getting increasingly shit making sure these questions are posted at the right time. I just, I don't know what is wrong with me, but I constantly forget. So um, only a few comments this week. Uh, number one was from Bear Kloss, who said uh, three words to describe her author strategy, her, sorry, her author branding. I should tell you the question first, shouldn't I? The question was, what three words describe your author branding? And bears were quality, detailed, and entertaining, hopefully. Jackie then also came in and said three words for my author branding are new, lacking, and underdeveloped. And she then said, I'm working on it. So I challenged back because we are here to support you. We're, I'm here to support all indie authors. And um, yeah, I'm behind you. So I said, how about fresh, hopeful, and learning? So hopefully you will take a slightly different spin on that uh, going forward. So this week's question is, what part of character creation do you find the hardest? The book recommendation of the week this week is The Occupation Thesaurus by Angela Ackerman and Becca Puglisi. I was honoured to get an advanced copy of this book and I loved it. They they always seem to knock it out of the park um, and I just, I love 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 their their thesauri and i even wrote a blog post about the reasons why i particularly loved their um this thesaurus uh, and the revelations that i got whilst reading it which have helped um me it writing and developing the scent of death which is the next book i'll write finish finish because I've started it already after I finished train. And also, very excitingly, I am going to be interviewing Becca towards the end of July, which, um, and obviously all about the occupation of the thesaurus. So look out for that shortly. And of course, I will leave links to the blog that I posted and also to uh, purchase the book in the show notes. Personal update news this week. I was delighted to be interviewed by A.G. Billick on her self-publishing mastery YouTube channel. Uh, we had an amazing chat about adulting and parenting and creativity and routine and lots more things. So if you would like to um, watch or listen to that, then I will leave a link in the show notes. This past week, I have been working on Trey and oh my fucking God, I literally cannot believe the difference a week can make. The week before last was the week that I cracked um, 
the plot problem and I stripped out what ended up being about 12,000 words, I think, uh, from the book, which at the time was pretty shocking to me. I didn't lose the words, I've, I've shunted them forwards. Uh, it's basically a subplot that um, if I had more book space, I would definitely include in book three, but I don't. So I've rewritten some of uh, the book and put it into the next one. So at least I'll be starting not from zero when it comes to book four. Um, but uh, it is Friday the 24th of July as I record this and I am halfway through the book. Like, I shit you not, I cannot believe in a week I've basically gone from zero uh, to, to 50%. So I think I started around the 18th, 19th, so less than a week in fact, and it's the 24th today and uh, yeah, I'm now 50% of the way through. Now, obviously, I'm not drafting this from scratch. Um, the book was 75K before I hacked out the um, 12,000 words. I'm now back up to, I think, 72,000 words, something like that. But what I've been doing is hacking the book to pieces. I mean, quite literally. I've got parts of chapters that were almost at the end of the book, nearer the beginning. I've got bits from the beginning that are in the middle, vice versa. I don't think a single chapter went unedited. And I've been inserting scenes, creating new content, and basically stitching the book together. And I have learned so much about my process through the drafting of this book because I actually started it two years ago. And in fact, I've learned so much. I'm, I may have to write a blog or I don't know, do a solo episode. I'm not sure yet, but I have certainly learned a lot of lessons about how I write and that they may not necessarily be useful for anyone else because I don't think I know two writers that write in the same way. But yeah, I, I feel like I am finally developing a process for how I write fiction and I have been craving that for so long and I think it is just um, a matter of time and the number of books and so yes, I, I am super excited. I now feel like I could probably get to the end of this draft I don't know, maybe a week or two at the most. I think if I continue at the pace I've been going, I am uh, in the middle where the biggest rewrites are at the moment. So like today, it took me like the whole day to get one chapter and it's not even finished because it's it's in six pieces, but the right order with the right motivations for all the characters. Um, but yes, and so that means that I'm hoping by the end of August, I will be handing the book to my critique partner. And usually it's quite a quick process uh, between getting um, her edits uh, and comments back and handing it then to the editor, which means I it's highly likely now that I will publish this book um, before the end of the year, which is amazing. I am super excited. Okay, in other news, I have also uh, nearly, well, <laughs> I am almost to the point where I will be recording the Anatomy of Prose course. I still want to launch the course at the end of September. Trying to pick up speed with that. Um, I am almost through the slide decks, I think, although this week I spent a lot of the week doing bonus material and coming up with ideas for extra things that I can include. So that's quite exciting. And I am, yeah, I'm starting to think about the marketing and uh, the, the launch for that as well. And last but by no means least, 
uh, we have an almost completed audio booth, which is so exciting. I just have to hang the door and then order all of the acoustic foam and panelling, which I will be doing at the end of this month. And then I think probably, well, depending on how busy I am in August, I mean, I've already got the two big projects, which are Finishing Tray and the Prose Course. I hope to have recorded at least 30 to 50% of the book by the end of the quarter, so by the end of September with a view to of having done the whole thing and having it go through ACX and find a way before the end of the year. So yeah, I, I'm excited and I'm excited to start recording at last too. Listener Rebel of the Week this week is HB Line. HB says, I was about 15 and went to a good school in a small tourist town. At lunchtime, a lot of us used to go to the castle ruins in the centre of town to eat our fish and chips. But one lunchtime, I snuck off with three other girls, one of whom who had brought an interesting cocktail in from home. We went to a quiet nook tucked away down the cliff from the castle and shared this drink. It was in a plastic bottle and she was vague about what was in it. We returned to school very giggly and I stumbled into my first class of the afternoon. P.E. By the time I got to drama class at the end of the day, I felt very ill and spent the whole class hiding in a dark corner with my head in my hands. It was one of my fondest memories and cemented my nature as a rebel. I love this story. I don't know about you guys, but I definitely did my fair share of <laughs> naughty things at school that I probably shouldn't have, in including turning up to exams in a less than great state and uh, I'm going to pretend that my mum doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> if you'd like to be a rebel of the week, please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion, big, small or somewhere in between. You can email your rebel story to rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com or tweet me at rebelauthorpod. Thank you to new patron Kari Busiak. I really, really do appreciate all of the support and that includes all of my current patrons. I know I say this every week, but I say it because it's true. You guys help uh, to both keep the podcast running and make me feel like what I'm doing is helping and worthwhile. So thank you very much from the bottom of my heart for all of your support. If you would like to support the show and get access to all of the bonus essays, posts, content, uh, giveaways and opportunities, then you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. And that's Sasha with a C and not an S. This week's episode is sponsored by Kobo. So I will play a word from the sponsor and then we'll get on with the show. Hi, I'm Stephanie. And I'm Tara. And we're from Kobo Writing Life, Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors, and our team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help authors reach new readers around the world. We wanted to tell you a little about Kobo's global reach. From our home base here in Toronto, we work hard to keep customers reading all over the world. And as a KWL author, you're doing your part too. Here are some tips that can help your books stand out globally. 
At Kobo Writing Life, you can set the price in 16 currencies. When you're pricing your book, you should consider how your prices are being shown globally in our store. Is your $5.99 USD price showing as $4.69 in British pounds? Chances are an offered price will likely dissuade the purchase of your book. Make sure you are manually setting the price in all currencies. Speaking of all the worldly currencies, you can also set price promotions with KWL that are currency specific. Want to honor Canada Day with a promotion? You can do that in Canadian dollars and leave your other prices just as they are. And we haven't even mentioned all the partner stores Kobo has around the world. Did you know that you can target your marketing to our partners directly? If you want to learn more about this or any aspects of KWL, check out the Kobo Writing Life podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts and find us on social. You can create your free account today at kobo.com slash writinglife. We hope to see your books on Kobo very soon. Happy writing. Hello and welcome back to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today I am joined by Dr. Alex Bryant. Alex is a psychology tutor and improv comedian, appearing twice a month in London's Museum of Comedy with his troupe hive mind making up brand new fantasy worlds every night. He's been a drama teacher, playwright and ski instructor too. At Cambridge, he researched delusions as they occur in both mental illness and in everyday life. It turns out it's much harder to tell the difference between madness and sanity than we might think. In a world where most people still believe in superstition, magic and the paranormal. Alex is also fascinated by, by the psychological traits that lead to extremism and intolerance, forces which drive societies apart if left unchecked. These interests led to the world of God Machine, where both witchcraft and fear of witchcraft are still running rampant in the modern world, with both, both hilarious and tragic results. Welcome. Thank you very much for that introduction. I don't think I've ever heard such an eloquent one in my life. <laughs> oh, stop. <laughs> Um, well, yes, no, it's a pleasure to have you. And I know that we were supposed to meet uh, in real life uh, at London Book Fair and um, bloody coronavirus uh, strikes again and cancelled the London Book Fair. Um, but yes, I'm super excited to um, talk to you today, not just because you have a gorgeous book, but also because you are a psychologist and that is my background also. So I am super excited to get into a really niche topic that I think will help um, writers and also just because it's fascinating to me and so I get to nerd out. Um, but first, tell everyone a little bit more about you, your writing journey and how you got to where you are today. Wonderful. Um, so as you mentioned, I, um, I did a PhD um, in uh, delusions um, and how, how they appear across the um, human experience from people we call mad to people that we would uh, like to call sane. Um, but um, before I was ever interested in that, I was interested in writing. Um, I, I grew up obviously being a very keen reader, um, reading under um, the sheets. And that uh, passion stayed with me until uh, at the age of 19, um, I got the first idea for this um, world that I developed um, shortly after falling off a horse. Um, quite a quite a traumatic experience for my you know for my developing mind but but then you know a whole a whole world came out of it and here I am um yeah, I spent all my time at Cambridge kind of developing this world and starting to write this novel um and then over the course of that it turned into a series of eight novels uh, seven novels rather in the end it the number fluctuated as I went um and 
the, the novel I'm now writing is actually not the novel I started writing. It's uh, the novel I started writing is now book five in a series because I've got a lot of, lot of backstory to get through before I can even get to the, to the main novel I wanted to write originally. So I've currently just brought out book one in this series and I'm right now working very hard on book two. I love how that happens. Uh, also happened to me. I was originally writing a standalone <laughs> five books later. Uh, yeah, it's now, it's now a five book series with a prequel and a few short stories and bonus epilogues thrown in along the way it's funny how that happens and also it wasn't even supposed to be written from the character's point of view that it's been written from so yeah those bastard characters um okay so you've recently published the book that we're talking about and i absolutely adore the cover i think it's um gorgeous also because of the colors so so on brand for me so i just <laughs> i love purple and the blues and anyway um so tell everyone a little bit more about your book um, yeah, my book is called The Identity Thief, um, and as you've mentioned, it's the first book in the God Machine series. Uh, the God Machine series as a whole is set in a parallel version of modern-day London, where uh, magic is real, but unfortunately it doesn't work. So it's not too far away from our real world, um, but there's a few key differences. Magic is also completely illegal, so the only people practicing it are sort of shady underground criminal characters committing sorcery uh, you know, in the alleyways of London at night. Uh, and our main her uh, our, our heroine, who's a 12-year-old uh, schoolgirl, obviously has nothing to do with that murky world, except that her mum, guess what, is, is heading up uh, one of the major uh, police forces that deals with sorcery and tries to, to tackle sorcerers. So needless to say, she soon finds herself coming into um, sharp contact with um, sorcerers herself and trying to um, keep her head above water when faced with threats that she's never seen before. Um, so um, the, the Identity Thief um, is all about one such sorcerer called Cuttlefish, whose who's, um, modus operandi is changing his own appearance to resemble that of um, anyone he wants, loved ones, friends, and he uses that to cause uh, chaos and dismay wherever he goes. Um, he's on the hunt for a, a mysterious ancient series of magic books called the Daedalus Set. These are sort of grimoires that are enchanted um, and uh, that uh, allegedly contain the secrets to building a magical artifact called the God Machine. Um, and his quest to, to find these books and build the God Machine uh, will bring him sooner or later straight into uh, Cass's own school, uh, where it will just be uh, um, her up against this formidable foe. Um, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love that you have your pitch nailed because I can assure you that a lot of authors do not. Uh, I mostly do not have my book pitches down, apart from the one that I'm writing now. But yeah, I really struggle. So that was excellent. Um, okay, so I'm going to throw in a question that um, I didn't tell you I was going to ask, but how have you found Perfect. writing the second book versus writing the first book? Like the experience and the process? Oh boy, oh boy, yeah, it's a very different process. Uh, the first book took me, um, by some counts, 10 years, by some counts, by other counts, 13 years to write. Um, so <laughs> quite a long-winded process. As I said, I first had the idea when I was just 19 years old, uh, falling off a horse. Um, that's when I thought I, I, should, I should write this book. Um, and the, as I mentioned, the book I'm now writing is not even that book. Um, even the book I was meant to write then is now totally different from the book I even want to write now. Um, everything has changed, including how the magic works, um, who, you know, who the, who the villain is, um, who the, you know, um, who the main characters, the characters of the main characters' lives are, and so on. Everything is completely different. Um, and yes, as you can imagine, for a 10-year process, I wrote, uh, I, I wrote down a lot of dead ends. I went in a lot of 
irrelevant directions, I probably racked up, I've got no idea, 200 or 300 or maybe even 500,000 words of material in this process, which obviously most, most of which is not in the, the book. Um, in comparison, yeah, I started writing book two in April. Um, it's now July and I've, I'm about three quarters of the way through my first draft. And it's been, I've, I planned the book properly. I actually made a plan before I started, so I knew what I was gonna do. Um, that saved me a lot of time, I can assure you. And even though that's changing, I'm, I'm much, much more on, um, on top of that. I, I'm a much better aware of, um, the, you know, how the plot needs to work, what, what key ingredients need to be in the plot to make it make sense, and what really fundamentally matters to my plot, which is, you know, characters and emotions and relationships, and what doesn't really matter, which are sort of chance events and special objects and all the rest of it. Um, so yeah, it, it, the first book's been a learning book and I've come a long way and I'm still learning a lot now, but it's, it's, it's a lot more easy. I love it. It sounds very familiar uh, in terms of experience to what I also experienced with my first book, which was had the idea when I was like a young teen and then the book basically completely changed, even though it's the same book, but it's not, it's completely different. Uh, yes, and I think my count, so I wrote three full drafts and threw away two of them completely and just started again. So I think I racked up 237,000 words for a 64,000 mm. word book. So yeah, I wow. feel your pain, I feel your pain. Um, <clears throat> okay, so we are here to talk about psychology and characters because of your extremely fascinating day job as a psychologist. So how did you personally use your knowledge and experience as a psychologist to help you create your characters? Um, so yeah, my, my, my research area is in mental illness, specifically mental health and, and sort of varieties of um, mental health disorder and varieties of personality. So, um, in, in, yeah, that background has been very useful in helping develop characters. Um, you often don't see sort of, uh, mental illness portrayed in, uh, uh novels. And when you do it, it's in a very, very one dimensional way, as I think you're going to mention in a second. But um, so I, I, I try to create characters that are a bit, a bit more, um, that um, are, are, a, are a bit more nuanced and, and also that sort of don't go to extremes as often. So they're just sort of, they're, they're, they exhibit sort of slightly milder symptoms and slightly milder presentations of conditions that um, we're all uh, familiar with. Um, and, and slightly more complexly as well. So it's not just like this character has this thing, this character has this thing, because in, in real life, people have uh, all kinds of complex overlapping things and um, some of these are come from the individual, some of these come from your environment, and they all kind of go into a pot to make to make who you are. Absolutely, and I think, um, yeah, I, I will happily rant and rave about uh, one-dimensional um, villains in particular, but we'll, we'll get to that um, shortly. I, I wanted to pick up on one specific line in your bio, which is, um, it turns out it's much harder to tell the difference between madness and sanity than we might think in a world where most people still believe in superstition, magic, and the paranormal. So can you talk to listeners about your research? I know um, I found uh, that line in particular very fascinating from a psychological perspective and in terms of character creation. So I'd love to delve into the fine line um, and some of your findings. Wonderful, yeah. So my first interest in this whole field before I even started my PhD was looking at delusions and hallucinations. So delusions are false beliefs, um, like, you know, believing that the government has launched a special task force to 
try and hunt you down, um, which for most people isn't true. Um, and hallucinations are, are false perceptions. So, you know, hearing voices or seeing people that aren't there. Um, and yeah, the, those, two, those two experiences combine to form what we call psychosis, which is, um, you know, the, the, the medical term for what we call, um, for, for the main symptom of schizophrenia or, or dementia or, or other, other names for madness, basically. Um, but it turns out that uh, a large portion of the healthy population, you know, population that doesn't have schizophrenia or psychosis or dementia, also experience the same things. They experience um, very severe um, delusions that are hard to shake, that seem totally bizarre and implausible. Um, and they also experience um, hallucinations. Lots of people hear voices, lots of people see things that aren't there. Um, and we don't want to call those people mad. So, so it, it's about trying to, un so, so my research was all about trying to explore that spectrum and, and see it as a spectrum. Um, in particular, I looked at um, perception of eye direction because it's quite a, a useful single aspect of um, human perception to look at. So uh, obviously, when we look at someone's face, um, we're looking at their eyes a lot because their eyes are a very useful um, social cue to figure out what, what they're thinking. And we, in particular, look out for when they're looking back at us because if someone's looking at us, that's very important. That means that they are talking, you know, are interested in us in some way, whether that's to punch us in the face or um, seduce us, which, you know, which are all very important things for us to be aware of when they're happening. Um, so we all tend to look at our, um, we, um, it, it, so we all look very closely for other people that are looking straight at us. And in particular, we all tend to overestimate how often someone really is looking at us. And, and this is a very um, predictable bias. Um, so it, it turns out that people with psychosis do this a lot more. They're, they're a lot more likely to think that people are looking straight at them. Um, but we all do it to some extent, and there's a spectrum of, of people, there's a spectrum of, of strengths of that bias. And so I was really exploring that strength of bias and seeing how it maps onto um, uh, our idea of, of psychosis or not psychosis. That is absolutely fascinating. Can I ask more questions? I So you talked about how, um, okay, wait, no. So ha have you ever personally experienced hallucinations? Sorry, I have so many questions. Yeah, because I, um, I was really young and had an extremely bad fever um, for a prolonged period of time when I was a child and I experienced hallucinations and I never knew that they were hallucinations until I was older. And wow. um, yeah, well, I mean my mum knew but obviously like you forget that you've been ill and blah 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 um and I was like oh my doctor's on tv <laughs> when I was like in my young teens my mum was like what do you mean and um th this particular illness was always uh very vivid in my mind because I missed out on a really big school trip and I was like, oh, do you remember that time I was ill? And I had, a, we, at the time we had a, it was back when doctors would still come and do call outs to houses. So we had okay. a doctor come and visit. And um, I can't, for the life of me, oh yes, I do remember his name now. Um, but, but anyway, so I thought that the person who had come to be my doctor was Gary Rhodes, the chef with like the spiky hair, who, who I think recently passed away actually, sadly. Um, but yeah, I still remember that. And I had a few delusions, or not delusions, sorry, uh, hallucinations that then gave me some irrational fears. So I got trifophilia after, which is the fear of like lots of tiny holes. And also I was, Ooh. yeah, I was- I had, you'd, you'd, you'll hate, you'd, you'd hate the clients of my book then, God. <laughs> Um, and then, and then um, there was another one about Beauty and the Beast and I just, like this whole scene was playing out in front of me. But yeah, anyway, so have you ever personally experienced hallucinations? 
Yeah. Um, one, one thing that I've had intermittently my whole life are, are night terrors, um, which are um, very commonly experienced. Just as you're falling asleep, um, you can get these vivid and very terrifying hallucinations. In my case, I was once uh, living in this basement flat and I was all alone. Uh, I was living with a girlfriend at the time, but she was, she was out. Um, and then that night, I, I was lying in bed, again, eyes open, everything seemed normal. Saw this black smoke coming through the, the crack in my door, my bedroom door, um, and slowly filling up my room. And then the black smoke slowly turned into a human form in my room, uh, like, a, like a monk with a, with a big um, sort of, um, hood up with, a, with an invisible face. And started just sort of threatening me, basically, and just saying these dark and sinister things from underneath their hood. Um, and then, and then, and then the monk basically raised me out of my bed, so raised me horizontally straight up out of my bed, and I was totally frozen in place. I was raised up like a horror film, and then, and then I was raised up and then spun violently around, like, like sort of clockwise like this for a while, and then, I, then I was stopped and then spun like head over heels like this as well, um, spun backwards and forwards all different directions, sort of slightly levitated out of my bed and then like thrown back into my bed. Um, and then I, then I came out of this, the monk sort of vanished. And I was like, oh my God, like if, 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 I, if I weren't the most sort of arch skeptic person you'd ever met in your life, if I wasn't a, a total atheist, rationalist, scientist, everything you could possibly name, I would certainly have just been converted to some kind of belief in demons or sort of dark angels because everything was so very vivid um, and there was, there was nothing about it that made, you know, that gave it away, there was hallucination. I, I woke up thinking, thank God, that's well, thank God that, that's not gonna ever happen again. Um, and then the next night, the exact same thing happened. Exactly the same. It's amazing also because obviously perception is such a huge part of our reality as well. And that so many beliefs can come from these things. So I wondered, you mentioned that it's really normal for um, people who are, you know, sort of, let's to use a better word, sane, um, to also have hallucinations and things. So can you give examples of what somebody who is classified as sane might have as a, as a, as a, is it just the hallucinations or do even that they also experience delusions? No, it's, it's absolutely, it can be delusions as well. And the delusions can be often more, more, well, less noticeable, but they're more prominent when you do notice them. Um, so interestingly, so in, in the, in the um, uh, diagnosticians and statisticians manual um, for say, for psychological disorders, which is how psychiatrists diagnose these things, um, a delusion, for example. Um, let me just check this. Let me just make sure I get this right. Um, I've got it up here. Um, so in the in the in the um, in the in the fourth edition of this book, a delusion was defined as um, a false belief based on incorrect inference about external reality that is firmly sustained despite what almost everyone else believes and despite what constitutes incontrovertible, incontrovertible and obvious proof or evidence to the contrary. The belief is not one ordinarily accepted by other members of the person's culture or culture. Um, and that final sentence is the most interesting one. In fact, it even says, e.g., it is not an article of religious faith. Uh, because in fact, um, a lot of um, uh, religious beliefs, a lot of beliefs um, that, um, that a large, you know, large swathes of the population believe, you know, some would argue have all the hallmarks of, of a sort of delusional belief because they're very, very ungrounded in reality. Um, and they're held very, very firmly in the face of in the face of any sort of discussion or or, or reasoning. Um, so that's one example. And another example is superstition, which uh, you know a huge percentage of the population have strong superstitious beliefs, which again, not even sort of religious um, sort of leaders are saying that these things are true. Like you know the belief that a, a black cat is literally bad luck, um, um, or a sort of belief that people can sort of 
send out sort of bad energy and curse other people or send good energy and, and make other people better. Um, you know, a large, huge percentage of people of, of the population actually do sort of genuinely believe these things. And, um, you know, I would argue, you know, there's, 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 there's sort of, there's absolutely no reason to, and it, it's very strange that they would, basically. It makes me wonder where people who believe in conspiracy theories sit on the, that spectrum. So I, I love a conspiracy theory, but I use them as like inspiration for a lot of, well, well I'm, I'm sort of plotting some dystopian novels uh, mm. which are not being written. Well, they're kind of, you know, when you just let them percolate, but I've got two other series I need to write first. But yeah, I suppose right. it makes you wonder like where conspiracy theories also sit on that spectrum. Um, so it's, I a have, great, it's a great other example, yeah. One of my big bugbears is when writers use mental health illnesses as the cause of evil or villainy in their villains. Could you talk a little bit about how writers can include mental health issues sensitively and in an ethically appropriate way? Excellent, excellent. So this, this question makes me uneasy because I have a, I have a villain who does in fact have some visible signs of psychosis um and psychosis is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a classic example of a mental health condition that is very se severely stigmatized as, as being sort of causing criminality when of course it doesn't in, in reality um so so i often i often think oh you know have i actually done this am i am, an, am i a person who can speak on this authoritatively or have i just made a, a you know made all the same crashing errors as as any other less less well-versed um, author would in this subject um, and the answer is well I hope not I have no I have no idea really um, what I what I would say is that um, you know first of all um, I have as I said many characters who who arguably have some kind of diagnosable mental health um, condition even though none of them actually do have a in the in the novel a formally diagnosed mental health condition um, um, and so there is a sort of um, there is a balance there. It's not just that all the villains are wandering around with these bizarre conditions and all the heroes are, are sort of mentally stable and strong and pure. Um, every, everyone, everyone, everyone is sort of got this kind of inner life that's, that's somewhat characterized by difficulty or pain or, or um, suffering. Um, I would also say that, um, oh yeah, I, I would also say that you know, the reverse can be easily um, simply trying to omit these kinds of people from your novels is arguably just as bad because you're sort of then just erasing a huge percentage of the population that do have mental health conditions um, and losing in the process, losing the opportunity for lots of you know interesting characters and, and rich, more diverse, sort of uh, neurodiverse characters in your novels. Um, you know, I think one in four people are said to have a mental health condition at some point, um, and it's probably higher than that. So if, if you're if you're just cutting all those people out of your novel, then you're you're doing um, your book at a service and you're doing your readers at a service too. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think, yeah, so perhaps it wasn't a very well-worded question, but um, I suppose my... That's a great question. It's a very important question. Yeah, and, and the thing is, I suppose what what my irritation is, is when the mental health illness is blamed for their um, criminal behaviour, which, uh, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with. I think there are lots of villains out there who are just plain arseholes. <laughs> Like, you know, yeah. and, and just like you say, heroes also can have mental health illnesses and, and, and you know, a quarter of the population essentially do. And, and I completely agree that um, we should uh, have both mental illnesses covered in our um, novels and also 
any other diverse aspects. So I suppose, is there anything else that you could dig into in, in terms of how writers can be sensitive in, in terms of including this? Let's say somebody wants to include one. What, what, should, they, what should they do? Um, I'd, re I'd recommend, uh, obviously you, you can start by looking at um, resources online, um, just to, if, if you have no idea about what mental health and mental health condition looks like, then obviously there's, there's plenty of great summaries online about what the core features are. But you really want to dig in and, and find out what it means to have that mental health illness and you don't know anyone personally who has that um, or perhaps you don't want to badger them about it for your for novel research because that's be pretty insulting um but, you know, there's plenty of um non-fiction written um by people who have these these conditions i would recommend finding something that's, that's written you know from the perspective of someone who has these conditions because they, they will always give you that much richer sort of inner life and experience um, there's plenty of testimonials and sort of or collected collected testimonials like that. Um, there's also lots of great fiction out there um, that will cover this. You know, the most famous example I think was the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime, um, which we all remember, written by a boy that has Asperger's syndrome, and it's got a very very evocative um, narration style, and and the main character just shines through, and it's clearly a very well. Um, well-written um, novel. You know, re you know, reading fiction might seem like a silly way to, to find out more, but this fiction is often written by people who have a lot of awareness of, have done their own research and have portrayed it on, on, on the page, and you can learn a lot about how you can portray similar things on the page as well. Absolutely. And um, I loved that book as well. I read that um, a few years ago and thought it was an absolutely fantastic novel. Um, are there any particular aspects of an illness that a writer should research? What should they look for specifically? Um, I'm not entirely sure what you mean. What okay, you mean, like... so so obviously um, there are lots of different aspects. So I guess what I'm looking, what I'm talking about is, for example, if somebody has, um, say, schizophrenia, um, what aspects of that? would be useful to know about in terms of a good representation? Um, would it be symptoms? Would it be treatments? What are the different elements mm. that a writer should know about in order to create something that's truly representative of that illness? Right, I see, I see. Um, yeah, so I, I, I run into this problem. I, you know, come at it from a scientific point of view, and so I've obviously read a lot about potential neural causes of schizophrenia and how it's caused by abnormal dopamine production in the brain and how it's caused by incorrect neural pruning. And of course, all this information is completely irrelevant to trying to create a character with schizophrenia um, on the page. Um, the scientific outlook, and, and again, the, the, the highly medicalized outlook, the very sort of, you know, how do we treat it? Okay, what are the symptoms from a, from a psychiatrist's point of view? What, are they, what is the psychiatrist looking for? Those are often very misleading in terms of trying to explain what it means to have schizophrenia. Um, so again, I would I would always look for first-hand accounts. You know, first-hand. What is it? What is it like to have schizophrenia from the inside? Um, who's written about this? There's lots of very eloquent accounts written about this. Um, and what's it like to be friends with someone with schizophrenia? Likewise, you know, um, you can have you can have second-hand accounts, but ones that come from a point of view of of not not a formal scientific point of view or a medical point of view. You want the you want the everyday social point of view um, to come shining through. Yeah, I love that because that also plays to the emotional line in a novel um, and mm. sort of the emotional uh, relationships that people would have uh, with somebody who might have a condition. 
Okay, let's move on. In recent times, we've seen some horrific uh, acts of violence, particularly linked to intolerance. I know that you've also done some research on these topics. So can you talk a little bit about the psychological traits behind these acts, as I think it will help listeners with their character development, probably um, especially for their villains? Mm. So you this is a fascinating question and I could, I could definitely talk for, for an hour just on this, um, but I'm going to have to try and say just one thing if I can. Um, and that is historically we've, we've seen terrorists as, well, and we still do in, 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 everyday, in the everyday world, we see terrorists um, often as, as lone madmen. And we kind of stop the story there. We're like, this person was insane because they did this terrible thing. And that's the end of the story. We can't possibly hope to, to understand them any more than the, that. They're just insane. And of course, that doesn't tell us anything um, about why they would do it. And it also makes, it also further stigmatizes the concept of insanity and, and makes other people with schizophrenia who would never dream of hurting anyone, um, you know, feel terrible um, and look terrible. Um, and, but, but in, in the sort of, um, in the world of criminal psychology, we've moved away from understanding these things on an individual level and more to looking at them in a group level. Um, and there's one phenomenon which is fascinating, for example, called um, in the field of group psychology, um, which is called groupthink, which is how members of a particular group um, will tend to get more and more extreme in their beliefs over time if they are if they are left alone and they have little contact with external beliefs. And there's a lot of different factors going into that. One of them is the need for belonging. Like we all we all join groups because we want and we want to then feel like we belong to the group. And so we then we then figure out what beliefs the group holds. And then we hold, we then adopt a more extreme version of that group, of that belief, so that we can feel really in, you know, we want to feel like the most extreme member of that group. And then the whole group shifts further and further into more extreme beliefs. And uh, this is exactly how cults form. Oh, well, that's you know, one factor in how cults form. You have, you know, relatively mild set of maybe religious or spiritual beliefs over time, um, um, becoming more and more extreme until they, until they develop a life of their own. Um, and and you, you also see that as they become more extreme, they, they become more cut off from the outside world. So you see the same thing in terrorist groups as, as in cults. In, in that the, the group will start to enforce this, um, this, this um, they start to insist they don't listen to the outside world anymore because those are dangerous, infidel, you know, danger, you know, unpleasant beliefs that we must cut off. And we have to only listen to our own chosen leaders and masters. And then again, that's a short recipe to make the unbeliefs more extreme. Um, so yeah, so so where criminal psychology is now is that is that uh, a perfectly mentally healthy, you know, normal person that we wouldn't think of as being in any way mentally ill can still, thanks to traits that are in every single human, can still fall prey to these mechanisms and become a terrorist or become a cultist, um, or similarly end up in a sort of extreme position that we can't understand. That is so, so fascinating, uh, especially that we all harbour these traits um, as well. And also giving me lots to think about in terms of one of my particular villains who is, I, well, and I don't think I realised that this is what they were doing, but definitely trying to form some kind of a cult. Um, so yeah, mm. I'm now like, oh, I, this is a rabbit warren of research I need to go down. Um, okay, so for selfish reasons, what kind of, uh, are there any books or resources that you would recommend in particular that you've read on this topic? Um, good question. Um, one that springs to mind just because I came across it rec recently is, is there's a Netflix series called Wild Wild Country, which is all about um, 
Rajneesh Puram, which was a, um, well, it, it's a fascinating group because some people very fervently believe that it's a cult and that it's, you know, it's an evil and dangerous cult. And then there's other people who, who say, no, this is just, you know, this, this was a religious center. It was founded in Oregon, USA. Um, and it was just a sort of religious center um, run by this charismatic leader called Osho, um, who's now dead. But the, the, you know, the, the religious, the religious um, group still survives and they have centers around the world. Um, and, but they're still wildly, you know, many people decry them as being a cult. And I, I enjoy the ambiguity there. I enjoy that it's not a very clear case of sort of, sort of a murderous or suicidal cult that we, um, it's sort of, um, it's not at all like that. It's much more subtle. Um, so that's a good one. Yeah. Thank you. I am definitely putting that on my Netflix list. Okay, this is my favourite question. This is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell us about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. Um, great question. Yeah, love it. Um, my, my mind immediately went to um, Extinction Rebellion um, back when, back in the, in the before four times when we were allowed out. Um, <laughs> And, and we could go to protests and things. Um, I, I was lucky to be involved in this, in this group called Extinction Theatre that, um, that brought, brought street, street guerrilla, guerrilla street theatre um, as part of the sort of the wider protest that was going on in London last year. Um, what we were doing were, were, were creating small theatrical, sort of candid camera style, like theatrical, um, experiences that, that you know people didn't know were theatrical so we were sort of performing live um, scenes and seeing if we could sort of get people to believe us uh, and, and what we were doing um, was trying to, to create a world where you know global warming has accelerated and has led to severe economic issues um, so we had a sort of a we had food rationing being brought back, being brought, brought back and people having to queue for food rations and um, sort of people handing out food but running out of food rations and all the sort of uh, misery and chaos and sort of societal pressure that that would cause, um, which at the time seemed like a very far-fetched um, sort of reality. But, you know, this year really has seen us enter into sort of bizarre, borderline um, dystopian world in many ways, um, which has made that reality uh, come true. Yes, and I suspect there'll be an explosion of dystopian novels from indie authors coming soon. <laughs> Okay. Apparently, there's never been a worse time to do a dystopian novel. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. Well, no, because everybody wants escapism <laughs> from it. However, be, I see, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but there will still be loads of. Give it a year or two, and there'll be an absolute flood of dystopian novels. Um, okay. Tell listeners where they can find out more about you and your books. Um, great. So my my author website is um, alexbryantauthor.com, uh, and you can find my books on Amazon. Uh, you can find my books in all reputable bookstores, um, as long as your definition of reputable is uh, just the one that's at the end of my street, which very kindly agreed to stock it uh, as a sort of personal favor. Um, other than that, I really recommend sticking to Amazon. That's going to be the most useful option for, for most people. Um, yeah, you can search Alex Bryant, uh, the identity thief, uh, God Machine, and you should be able to find me there. Or go to my website where you can... Where you can um, uh, get your teeth into various bits of uh, bonus content and um, background stories and world building. Superb. Well, thank you very much for your time. And I will make sure that all of those links are also in the show notes. 
So thank you very much to all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Thank you very much also to all of our listeners. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Alex Bryant. Actually, you are listening to Dr. Alex Bryant. <laughs> you deserve your props for that. And this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, as already mentioned, I will have a interview with Becca Puglisi all about character occupations and how you can use them to create conflict and connect it to your theme. And yes, I am super excited for that episode next week. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.